Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 22 of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we are here because of Jimi Hendrix right now. Because we need to set off the second half of our episode, a two-parter, on James Marshall Hendrix. Or Johnny Allen Hendrix, as his parents originally named him. Or Buster, as or everybody Buster. in Seattle called That's him. That's right. But uh, what we want to do right now is jump into what we're calling episode number 22, and it's sponsored by Crooked Eye Brewing in Hapro. When you need a tasty brew, you stop by. They make it on premise. It's great stuff, always fresh, and there's always a wide variety of brews on the board at Crooked Eye in Hapro. So, shall we jump right into it? I mean, we left off at the Savile Theater thing where uh, Paul and George were at the Hendrix show. And he played Sergeant Pepper's. And some of the best stuff is yet to come here on episode 22. It's Jimi Hendrix, The Gods Made Love. And gave us Jimmy. So summer's coming, and um, the album's been released in the U.S. Hey Joe's the first single, and it doesn't do anything. Which is hard to believe if you think about it. I can't believe that. And that's when the whole thing about Monterey happened with McCartney recommending Jimmy, right? So he goes to Monterey... And he burns the guitar down, literally, right? That's He sets it on fire. It's the famous shot. And I read somewhere, the guy who took that photo of Jimmy setting his guitar on fire at Monterey was down to his last roll of film when Jimmy took the stage. So what's that, 24 exposures? Something like that. The very last photo. He saved one shot. And the very last photo on the roll was Jimmy's guitar on fire. Can you imagine? If he had taken one other picture during the set, he would have missed it. That photographer had the intuition to save one photo. That's pretty miraculous. Well, in those days, you had to look at it differently, you know, uh, oh, yeah. if you were shooting shows and stuff oh, like oh, that. Yeah. But So that's when the ride begins there at Monterey Pop, and word spreads. Uh, at the same time, Tom Donahue is in L.A. and doing his free-form progressive underground radio, one of the first ones, right? I was L.A. or San Francisco, I can't remember. but um, So that's starting, and stations like that around the country are starting to happen, and they get wind of Jimi Hendrix. They hear about Monterey Pop. Word spreads because you know, that's how it spread back then. Word of mouth can be a radio and a few magazines. Get on that rotary dial phone and call somebody Woo! and tell them about Monterey. <laughs> well, they weren't done on the West Coast after that. They went up to San Francisco, and they played Bill Graham's Fillmore, and they played with uh, Big Brother and the Airplane, and word is they blew them all off the stage. Um, I can't imagine blowing 
Janis Joplin off the stage. Can you imagine? Though, wait a minute. Stop. What? You see Jimi Hendrix, you see Big Brother, and Jefferson Airplane all in one night. It was probably, oh, my God, $4. Yeah. <sighs> that and that was an expensive concert. That's a what? <laughs> so, and it was the Fillmore, so it was a very intimate place. And, you know, and then he ended up playing uh, at a big uh, free concert in Golden Gate Park, which was the thing to do back then. Actually opened for the Monkees on his first big American tour. That's crazy. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. That's what? Totally a what? I mean, I knew that, but still, it's one of those things, you know? I didn't know that. That's crazy. He said, uh, Chaz later said, yeah, we did it because we knew the publicity would get Jimmy to play in front of the kids who would go to see the monkeys. Smart manager. Very smart manager. Then the second record comes into play, Axis Bold as Love. And anybody who thought it was going to be a revisiting of the same themes and sounds as Are You Experienced, we're in for a surprise because he starts with EXP, which is all, it's all just experimental sounds, EXP. And that's how he gets the ball rolling on that album, which is an incredible audio ride. The, in, the innovation on that album. Eddie Kramer, God, I don't know how he could how he could contain himself as an engineer on the project, working with Chandler and Hendrix on it. He's in the middle of all this. And the thing I love about Eddie Kramer, other than, than almost every record he ever mixed or, or engineered, is that he was a photographer who ha- always had his camera in the studio with him, but not in an obvious place. And that's a lot of the pictures that you see of Jimmy from uh, both uh, Axis Bold as Love and Electric Ladyland sessions, just laying around the studio couch and talking with people, people coming by, uh, things like that, is because Eddie would just slide the camera out when everybody was chilling and talking and having a smoke and a beer, and he would just fire off a couple frames and then stick it back in its little cubby hole so nobody would really notice. Have you so he got all these incredible casual photos during sessions. And uh, yeah, I know. And he was in so many of the uh, so many album sessions. I mean, just his work with Hendrix and Zeppelin alone should put him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, I can't believe he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet. These are some of the things that the Hall needs to correct. Yeah, the Hall definitely needs to work on this aspect. And Jimmy just loves being in the studio. He gets to the point where he's telling Chaz and uh, and Michael Jeffrey, who's his manager, co-manager, and who would also handle his affairs after his death. Book me like weekend runs. That's This is what classic rock bands do in the 21st century. They book weekend runs like Eddie Money or Blue Oyster Cult. We'll leave the house on Wednesday night and come back Sunday night, do three, four gigs, things like that. Yeah, he That's how he wanted to work. But he was like, Jimmy, I got work in Japan. I got work here across the country. I got... And they would work out a leg of tour dates that where he would play a few days a week. And then he was back in the studio. And they realized that the studio that they were working in, that they were locking out days, which was adding incredible cost to the productions that they were doing. Yeah, they were coming up with Axis Bold as Love and Electric Ladyland. Well, that's why he bought it. That's why he changed it, the name of the studio to Electric Ladyland. He took it over and he redesigned it to his liking. He didn't want there to be corners and sharp edges. He ha- he paid special for uh, them to put in a rounded studio double glass between Whoa. the booth and the recording room, things like that. And he made it his own 
and he just kind of disappeared in there while continuing to play. Um, Before we go any further, what you say, man, y'all really had a lot of patience. Three days work. He proved to the world what can happen. A little bit of love and understanding in sounds. <laughs> Anyway, we'd like to say, man, we really appreciate y'all having patience with us. Because it's really, really is nerve-wracking, man. That's why we waited to the sun up. And maybe the new day might give us a chance. Uh, there is a uh, particular performance that has an anniversary this week <laughs> that Jimmy is known for playing. Um, and I want to jump around a little here because it is the 50th anniversary of Woodstock as we're dropping this podcast. Yes. And it occurs to me that it's never going to get better than it was in 1969. And the legend of that festival, the original Woodstock Festival, you talked about, we mentioned Janice, we mentioned Airplane and a few others. They're just a handful of the people who also were at Woodstock when Jimmy performed. He chose to go on last, not thinking that after three days of love and music and peace and mud, that some of the crowd might not be there when he went on on Sunday morning. And sure enough, uh, out of the 450, 500,000 people who were reportedly there, only about 40, 45,000 stayed to see Jimmy Yeah, it was at a the very end. small amount, 10% at the most. Dude, I've never done acid for three days, so I can't imagine how most of the crowd was totally done, fried, yeah. over, ready to go. So 40,000 people are there when he starts. And a bunch of them actually stayed to see, say they saw Hendrix at Woodstock and then left. It's just, I guess it's the marathon concert mentality because that's something that'll make you say, what? <laughs> but, so there he is at the end, slinging away, wailing. In the, the guys in the band said it wasn't their best performance. He'd augmented with some other players. But I listened back to that, those... Hendrix tracks from Woodstock, and uh, it's just amazing stuff. There he is doing the the famous Star Spangled Banner at the end, and good morning and goodbye, and that was Woodstock, you know? He was actually told that if he played that version of the Star Spangled Banner in Dallas after he played it at Woodstock, he would be arrested and possibly killed. Well, that's... He got a lot of threats from a lot of redneck-ass people. Yeah, well, he was going to get that anyway. Being a black man with a pulse in America at that time wasn't easy, you had, you had to be true to yourself, you had to be true to what you felt, and you had to not give a shit about that stuff. But it could have been a real concern, except for he didn't make it to Dallas to play the Star Spangled Banner. And um, that's part of the, the story, too. It's the sad part, you know? Yeah. Um, and after this epic period, right, of these three amazing albums and all the legendary shows and all that, so in the afterglow or hangover if you will of 1969 you know um mitchell seemed fine but noel redding was talking about uh doing another project you know like a solo project something else to do i i guess it was because there was there was tensions and they were on they saw they were seeing each other at this point a lot they were always in the studio or on the road and uh, it all came to a head in June 29th, 1969, at the late Great Barry Fay's Denver Pop Festival was their last performance as the original experience. Mile High Stadium in its early days. Yeah, man. Had the same meaning then as it has now, though. Yep. Denver's definitely mile high these days. Oh, without a doubt, it's actually a mile higher. <laughs> so it's the end of the original experience, and it was a crazy show. There was a raucous affair, and there was police and 
tear gas involved from what uh, one account said. When he got to the show, Noel Redding um, was asked by a journalist, hey, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I'm coming in for the show. And he says, well, uh, Jimmy announced two weeks ago that he had replaced you with Billy Cox. And Billy Cox and, and Jimmy were close, and he stayed with them. And I, at that point, people were having a hard time calling it the Jimi Hendrix experience on the inside, but the outside world kept just calling it that, including for the posters for the uh, concert at Temple Stadium in Philadelphia, which said it was the Jimi Hendrix experience, even though it wasn't on their part or on oh, the rider. Wow. They were known as the Cry of Love Band by that point. Yeah. Didn't they evolve into Band of Gypsies from there? Well, they did. Um, they... Um, this brings up Ed Chalpin again, because remember that contract that Jimmy had signed, yeah, a recording contract? He said, hey, contract. you owe me, you owe me a recording. They worked out a deal that if they did one record as the Band of Gypsies, that um, that, that would satisfy it. And so that was like kind of like working out a settlement on that. Mm-hmm. Bill is proud to welcome back some very old friends with a brand new name, Jimi Hendrix and a Band of Gypsies. Because it would have been a stalemate otherwise. And Jimmy being Jimmy wasn't going to just give his recording career to this guy. So he gives him Band of Gypsies, which is a one-off live album. And that kind of creates a whole new fury, a whole new buzz out there about Hendrix. Because he's doing this Band of Gypsies thing. But when they would go on the road after that, and I guess before it too, they wanted to go out as the Cry of Love band. They wanted to go out and with the, the, their new identity, and all the promoters kind of refused just by putting Jimi Hendrix Experience on all the advertising, including that show in Philly. Uh, you know, it's uh, I saw that and I went, oh yeah, this plays into this whole thing. We don't want to call you what you want to call yourself. Which, by the way, in those days, uh, promoters could get away with. Yeah, they could. Nowadays, there's no way legally they could get away with it. So, as we see, I mean, you have bands that were together in the 80s that are now broken up, fighting over band names. So, yeah. there's all these specifics and legalities that are involved. But it's, you know, that whole period was also crazy for Jimi Hendrix. He was starting to play less with white musicians and play more with the black musicians at that time. His sound was evolving. His sound was changing. He was playing with people like Miles Davis. And, you know, these are guys that um, it's at a time when I'd say the black power movement was uh, very active. Yep. And so there was a pull socially to work with in, in different it, well he was trying different things but to work with uh, other African American players and so he did it fulfilled the contract and created a legend for Band of Gypsies yeah. all at the same time but a lot of times like when he was meeting in the studio he was re- you know recording and doing stuff with a lot of these African American musicians that we mentioned and he was developing this idea about a black superhero called Black Gold Sweet. Oh. And he ended up giving those tapes to Noel Redding or Mitch Mitchell. I can't remember who got those tapes, but he gave them to one of them to hold on to. And they're starting to slowly come out. And some of that music is coming out. I mean, we've seen it. A lot of his posthumous uh, music come out as well because he spent so much time in the studio making music. But I guess the layers and the complexity of this black gold suite that he was working on about a superhero was just over the top brilliant and the layers and the complexity and the music were just amazing 
the transition there for Band of Gypsies was that they got popular. So they only did a few gigs, and in early 1970, they do their final gig. It's at Madison Square Garden. They did three gigs, and, and, and the third one was at Madison Square Garden. That's how big it was. It was the Winter Festival for Peace uh, in support of the anti-Vietnam War moratorium movement. Word is that somebody dosed Jimmy big time, and then he played the, higher, the whole thing high on uh, LSD. Wouldn't be surprised. One of the reports have it being Michael Jeffrey, his manager, so. Is the one who dosed him? Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Uh, but Somebody said it was to sabotage the current band so he could get the experience back together, which was what he really wanted Jimmy to focus on. But I don't think so. I just think those were the times, man. Yeah, but, I mean, I could see where there might be a little bit of sabotage in there due to the fact that the movement was what it was. But Jimi Hendrix's impact with just a few live shows and a couple of albums is monstrous. It's just, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that in such a little time, he did so much, and he really did do so much. And we're seeing it with all these transformations of him. And I wonder, and it's the question always, how many more transitions and layers and changes would we have seen if Jimmy hadn't died in September of 70? 70, did, 70 was a hell of a year, man. They, they, okay, so they started out with the Cry of Love tour, and that brings them to that date in Philly that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, they're killing it. Hendrix, Mitchell, and Cox, they're working together. It sounded good. They're, uh, they're in the studio. Um, they're working um, on the tracks that would become the Cry of Love record. And then Jimmy abandons the whole thing. And I think it was for the project that you were talking about. The Black Gold Suite. Maybe he didn't feel the stuff he was working on for Cry of Love or what became Cry of Love was as good as he could do. And then he started working on the other thing. And, you know, he put his whole heart and energy into everything. And you can hear it when you look at the body of work from when he was alive. And then you look past Cry of Love, which I think is just brilliant. I, I know why Jimmy may have thought he could do better or was it wasn't to be the next record. But after that, there's uh, compilations and uh, pieces of this and pieces of that and other versions of things that are released in various uh, anthologies um, up to the essential Hendrix double album, in, I guess, in the early 80s or late 70s. I remember seeing that around then. But first, we need to stop up and talk about our sponsors, the good people at Crooked Eye Brewery at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hapro, right in the heart of Hapro. It's always a good time and a fresh brew waiting when you stop by Crooked Eye. And there's more to the fun at Crooked Eye than just the brews. You can check their website out, crookedeyebrewery.com, for a full list of music events and fun scheduled each month. You can see the full schedule of all the different activities. Goat yoga, I think, is a thing now. Yeah. I know there's goat yoga. Yeah, there's all kinds of goat yoga or something wacky like that. Cat yoga is challenging as it is. Brews and yoga. But there's all kinds of fun activities and stuff for everybody. Uh, not just the rock and roll uh, at Crooked Eye Brewing. And like I said, they're right there on Montgomery Avenue. Uh, they started with just a little plank bar when they first, and a few stools. And now you see what it is after we went down there for the podcast party. And uh, the space allows itself to be used for live music and all kinds of fun activities. And of course, you get the taste, the taste of Crooked Eye. And uh, all those brews made right on the premises, brewed by Chief Brewer Jeff Mulherin. 
It's a great place for great brews, great people, and fun times. So stop by, and next time you need a pint, make it Crooked Eye in Hatboro. The guys, the brewer, everybody that's involved with Crooked Eye, very friendly, very family-oriented. Yeah. And it was really nice because it gives you that warm, friendly feel when you walk in that door. Serving nightly in the heart of Hatboro, it's Crooked Eye. They have the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support here on the podcast. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. What really has come out is the stuff that experienced Hendrix since Janie and Al got back involved and took things back and really went into the vaults and found stuff like Valleys of Neptune and, and the other releases that have come out over the last several years. It kind of is a better roadmap to where Jimmy was going um, sonically than where he was even on Cry of Love. I remember when that album came out, I bought a copy right away. I went on to one of the local record stores and pre-ordered it and got it. I was so excited to hear Jimmy music that I had not heard before because... I went and got it right away. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. That was a day of release by, without a doubt. That's one of those that has to be. Well, you know, what's funny is when Valleys of Neptune came out, it was... Probably the first album I ever got from somebody via, di like, they got it on dig digitally that day, and then they just sent it over to me. I burned it to a CD. Mm -hmm. It's on my uh, iPod. I listen to it all the time. And yeah. all those releases had specialness to them um, that were only even as great as the albums he made and released while he was alive are. Um, it, it hinted at the direction that he might head in next. Band of Gypsies gave people a taste of something different, and then he was going to do the Cry of Love type material, and then he decided to go beyond that, and then a lot of this stuff was also being worked on. And to his credit, despite uh, his many failings, which are outlined in Room Full of Mirrors and in the uh, movie with uh, uh, By Your Side with Andre 2000 playing Jimmy, brilliant performance, by the way, much overlooked at the time. Despite all that, Al eventually got it. And Janie, I think, was a, a real positive force in in uh, 
doing the right things by Jimmy's legacy. And because of that, we're hearing music that we would not have heard otherwise. And uh, I hope they just keep releasing them. If they have them, put them out because I think the fans are still hungry all these years later. You know, we're talking about almost 50 years since he died. Oh, absolutely. And people are still that hungry for new music from the man. I think we're going to get a lot more new music from him. They say, and these are the rumors that we read from people in the business who are closer to the camp, say there are hundreds of songs that have never been released. Well, kind of like Prince, but yeah, not as many. That's what I was just thinking of Prince, because we've talked about that when we're not podcasting, about the, the, the vault. And and all those hours that Jimmy locked out at his own studio and just recorded and recorded and recorded, there's so much stuff. And he wasn't somebody who would do like, okay, let's do three tonight and call it a day. He'd be in there working on stuff all night. He'd be finishing things from two nights ago. And uh, it was an ongoing process. And nobody, including Jimmy, had any reason to believe that it was going to end when it did in September of 1970. Yeah, the story behind his passing is absolutely crazy. And that yep. whole night seems to be like a blur from what we've discussed. Well, one of the things we haven't really talked much about is intake. Word of mouth legend early on when I was a kid in the 70s, people were always talking about the fact that if you took a one Quaalude, Jimmy would take two. If you did two tabs of acid, he would take three. He was always more and further and behind it is the artistic part of it because his his artistry needed to explore limits and push them in order to get to where he saw himself and felt himself going. The drugs were the backdrop of the time and ultimately, you know, it's what killed him. We all know the story about his um, last day. Most of it spent with Monica Danaman in London. Um, she's the only one who was with him. She made his final meal for him at their apartment. Uh, they were at the Samarkand Hotel, 11 o'clock or so, had a bottle of wine. She took him to a house of a friend and at 1.45. Uh, they were there for about an hour, and then she picked him up and drove them back to her place. They got home at 3 in the morning. Now, you're talking about not an unusual time for a rock and roller getting home at 3 o'clock in the morning, right? That was early for them. <laughs> and, then, and she said they stayed up and talked till about 7. And uh, when she woke up at around 11 in the morning, she said she found him breathing but unconscious and unresponsive, called for an ambulance. Now, check this time turnaround. She called them at 11.18. They were there at 11.27. And unfortunately... I think it was uh, an uninformed or underinformed uh, person in the ambulance. Didn't know that he had barbiturates and alcohol in his system. That's a deadly combination. And when he tried to sit up to vomit, they kind of held him down is the way the story is told. And by doing that, they caused him to asphyxiate and die. Who yeah. knows? Who you know knows? what? You know we what, buddy? Know, you know what, buddy? We've what? talked about some heavy stuff in this podcast, and that's the first time in 21 episodes that we were both dead silent and didn't have anything to say. There's nothing to say after that. They said that uh, Jimmy had taken nine of her prescribed Vesparox sleeping tablets. That's nine. Nine is eight. okay. I guess it's one of those two pills you break in half. Yeah, that'd be like eighteen nine ambience. times. Yeah, not eighteen times the recommended dosage is what he took. 
he could have ended up with permanent brain damage anyway, or something yeah, like that or been yeah. in a coma not attached to a machine as well. So. That plays into what I was saying about if I do two quaaludes, he did four, that kind of approach. And he just did too much. And it, it, it was accidental death. It was an open inquest. All I, all I can tell you is that I've been to the Greenwood Cemetery in Renton, Washington. Um, my friend Rockfish, who you are also yes. compadres with. Yeah. Worked um, with him for at a couple of radio stations in Denver during his time away from Seattle. My first visit to Seattle, we left the hotel early. He was going to drive me to the airport instead of me going on the shuttle bus with everybody else who was in town for the event. And we drove up to Renton, and we walked to the original grave site. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, there's this headstone, and there's there's a little little footprint dirt, you know, around it. And uh, on the uh, headstone, the there were guitar picks. There was pieces of joints. Um, other things, notes. And as I'm approaching, I see a couple right by the grave. Uh, we talked to them for a few minutes. They were a couple from Portland, Oregon, who had driven down. And what they were doing was making charcoal uh, etches. They would take a piece of uh, tissue paper, thin tissue paper, and rub the charcoal over it and then get the impression. The, the Basically, it would be a, a charcoal rubbing of Jimi Hendrix gravestone. That's cool. And they would take them back to their shop in Portland and frame them and sell them. Cool. And there was a whole market going on down there. That was a kind of a cool thing. Uh, and Rob and I just stood there and communed with Jimmy for a little while. Was, there's, I, I got to find the pictures. I have them somewhere. I'll put one up if I can find them. Definitely. It's it's one of those moments where you just I just felt the man more than I had, and I'd felt him tons by uh, 1992, three, four, whenever that was. And uh, years later, they uh, that gravestone. Uh, was fine. Nothing got damaged or anything. But just like uh, Jim Morrison's grave in Paris, it became a destination. So eventually, uh, money was raised. They built a, a, a proper uh, monument and moved Jimmy. They exhumed his body and moved him to a, a very prominent, easy access spot in the cemetery. It's still at Greenwood. And uh, they built a statue in a little area like a, with concrete benches, I think, where people can stop and come and visit and contemplate. Yeah. Which seems fitting, considering his place in rock and roll. Yeah. One of the things I think that surprises me is how optimistic, positive, and happy he remained mm-hmm. having such a brutal, brutal, and depressing and sad childhood that he had. I like think that the drug hard... use, the level of drug use that we that we talked about just now, and 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 he went through it throughout his years. Uh, some of his drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and stuff, uh, I think again, and even some of his boorish behavior can be attributed to that upbringing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, same as we've found, uh, throughout our, our rock and roll travels but, here on the podcast. But even as a teenager, he, from what we have read and studied, he seemed to still be a happy, positive kid and really still, yeah. still seemed to shine a light on he people didn't that realize he was what around. he was going through. Cause when you're a kid, that stuff seems normal because it's what your, your everyday normal is. That's Children true. are very adaptive and very, very uh, flexible. That's true. Everybody's everyday normal. But is given quite time different. to normalize your life and find out who you really are and what life can really be, you look back and, and, it, and it causes pressure points to uh, engage in people. And, and we've seen it with people we know. We've seen it with people we read about and we see it, certainly see it with people in rock and roll who've had a, had a tough start of things in life. Behind it all, all I can tell you is uh, on my syndicated radio show, I play more Jimi Hendrix songs than I've ever played on the radio. Uh, through my home listening, I listen to as much of his music as I can, as much as I can. It's not. I like to just listen. I don't just put it on and walk around. I like to sit and listen to the whole album. 
It's I that agree. kind of an experience for me and has been since the beginning. Oh, I, I could tell you, man, somewhere out there he's listening off the Internet. He's, he's pulling our feet up on the Internet. Jimmy, I still love you. Me too, man. And all these years later, coming up on 50 years, we still need you. So tell Al to keep releasing. And if you want to indoctrinate your children to books, there's some great children's books about oh, yeah, music out this. there. And Gary Golio is a friend of mine. The first book I ever interviewed him writing about was a book called Jimmy Sounds Like a Rainbow, The Story of a Young Jimi Hendrix. It's illustrated by Javaka Steptoe and again wow, written by Gary Golio. And it really shows the uniqueness and beauty that uh, Jimi Hendrix was as a child. And it gives you insight into who he was It was released by kid. Clarion Books, a division of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. So and, this is like a real, this is, and it's a beautiful book. I see it's autographed from the artist. Yeah. And it's just beautiful stuff here. And, and um, it goes over a lot of the things that we talked about, the one-string ukulele, the, uh, yeah, there it is. the first guitar. Yeah. And it just goes through the look at his childhood more, and it stays focused on his childhood. And I love reading books like this to my son. And so if you like to read, we'll be putting wow. the link up. I'll put the link Great up to artwork. Gary. Oh, the artwork's exceptional. He did one on Santana that's beautiful. He's done one on, he did one on the, the broomstick. Story. Yep, there's the broomstick. That's he, actually based off of a picture that I've seen. There's a photo of Jimmy in that pose with the broomstick yep. that I've seen before. Yep, and the artist that's did cool. his rendition oh, of it. Oh, so good. So, yeah, this is a wonderful book to Jimmy read. Jimmy listening to Robert Johnson, it looks like. Yep. Yeah, or John Lee Hooker. It's one John of those Lee guys. Yeah. So. Wow, man. So I recommend this for anybody who's trying to turn their kids onto the rock and roll that you loved or grandkids in some cases. Yeah. It's just a beautiful book. And you told me about it. I, I, yeah. Now that I see it, man, I Jackson wish I had that to, when my kids were were little guys. When I got a copy of this, Jackson used to read it to his son all the time as well. So it's a Groovy. great book. And again, Jimi Hendrix is one of those otherworldly forces that comes into our world about once a generation. Yes. And a lot of those otherworldly forces never realize the force that they have or the power that they have, and they kind of live in, in that anonymously. Jimmy didn't. No. He lived it all right out front, right to the end, really. Yeah. And uh, thank God he did, because he had no idea that he was going to run out of time. And we might have missed something that we got in the, in, the, in the real world, real time, when he was alive. That's true. Uh, the only regret I ever had about any of this is that I was too young to ever see him play live. And my friends who weren't, friends who saw him at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia, a small place in the 60s, yes? What? He played there a few times. And, uh, you know, the people who saw him at Temple Stadium and, and some of the other concerts that he gave in the Philadelphia area, people I know who saw him, uh, in, in other parts of the country, I, talk, I know I have a friend who saw him at Monterey, and everyone said the same thing. It was so much different, so much better, so much more amazing than most of whatever else was going on out there. Wow. Quite the story in rock and roll history, Jimi Hendrix, episode 22, part two. We didn't start out to make a two-parter, Marcus. No, we did not. But if you think about the depth of Jimi Hendrix yeah. and the hugeness of Jimi Hendrix, just an overview required two parts. So when we go into depth, we're going to have to take tiny little segments 
and really go into detail that way. It's almost like the rock and roll equivalent of the meteor hitting the earth and killing all the dinosaurs. You know what I mean? Really, you know, <laughs> you think about it. Now you're thinking about it, you're laughing harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's out of control, but yes. Next level that thinking. Is... That's always been my specialty. Oh, but, uh, man. But it really has been an amazing uh, double episode uh, about Jimmy here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Hopefully your Hendrix passions have been stoked and satisfied in the way that uh, ours have and as always we thank you for tuning in and we thank our sponsors crooked eye brewing and hapro always something tasty on tap there always a good time to be had find out what's going on right now and this week wherever you are at crookedeyebrewing.com time to wrap it up partner i know we're gonna have to wrap it up which is sad but we'd love your feedback why don't you hit us up at the imbalanced history of rock and roll on facebook yeah or you can follow us on twitter imbalanced histo because they wouldn't give us the ry ry and ry i don't know why Why won't they give us an ry absolutely that's a jerry seinfeld now why won't they give us an ry if you're new to our podcast you can go to our website imbalancedhistory.com and of course there's always email imbalancedhistory at gmail.com we'd love to hear back from you we'd love feedback if we made a mistake let us know what our boo-boo is we definitely like to fix our boo-boos and if you have an idea for a (laughs) podcast tell us about that too please that's gonna wrap it up that music you hear is rick defonzo check it out and uh, check it out online on rickdefonzo.com thanks to crooked eye and everybody who uh really including marisa this time for uh, helping to make this whole thing happen yeah, she's and uh, yeah, she's, we've been set up in our northern studios here yeah. at Dark Doc Media. <laughs> That's going to do it. I'm the Doc, Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.